Hey, good morning, all. We're going to start with our scripture reading here, and we haven't read scripture yet, our passage. So we're going to read from Psalm 139. So if you want to grab your Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew rack there in front of you. And if you are using the pew rack Bible, it's page 521. So Psalm 139, page 521. Let me invite you to stand up as you have it, and let me read it for us. You follow along. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The word of the Lord. Be seated. This sermon uh, was getting a bit long in the writing, and so I had to shorten it down. So I cut out the introduction. And the introduction was essentially the exact same introduction that I've used the last three weeks. So if you've been here the past three weeks, you've already actually heard the introduction. So uh, we're going to just move right into the text this morning, Psalm 139. If you haven't heard the introduction over the last three weeks, I think you'll be able to track along just as well. So jumping right into our text, Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is written by David. And is a particularly poignant psalm that speaks of God's compassionate presence. So in verses 1 through 5 here in the psalm, David speaks about how the Lord knows him in the most intimate ways. How the Lord has searched David out and knows when he sits and when he rises. He knows David's very thoughts. How God knows the paths that David takes where he lays his head at night, and how he even knows the words that are about to fall from David's tongue. 
God is all around David, hemming him in from behind and before. In verse 6, David says that David says that God knows uh, the depths of knowledge is be, are beyond David's capacity to understand. David says, it's too wonderful for me. I can't attain to it. And then in verses 7 through 12, David says there is nowhere that he can go to escape God's presence. If he goes up to the highest heavens, God is there. If he goes down to the lowest depths of the earth, into Sheol, into the underworld, God is there. If David mounted on the wings of the morning and flew to the farthest edges of the sea, even there God would find him. If David covered himself over in darkness and the light around him were as night, even the darkness could not hide him from God. The eyes of God pierce the darkness and see through the night as if it were noonday. Now, some of you might be wondering as you listen to all this, isn't all this divine presence just a bit much? Perhaps it all sounds a bit smothering to you. Do you like the fact that God is acquainted with all of your ways? That he knows your every thought? That he knows every word you say and every word you almost said? Do you like the fact that God is always watching, watching, watching? Well, it depends upon your view of God. If your fundamental view of God is that he is the judge of all the earth, who gives everyone what they deserve, the idea that you always live within his gaze may not comfort you. But for David, the nearness of God is a beautiful, inestimable comfort. That's because David has come to know and experience the unconditional love and care of God, even in the midst of his most colossal failure. Most of us, if we've grown up in church, we know the story of David. We teach it in Sunday school. David had been plucked from the sheep fields, brought into royal covenant with God, from shepherd boy to shepherd king. But then he had messed up really bad. Adultery, followed by multiple murders in an attempt to cover up the adultery. And under the dictates of the Jewish law, both adultery and murder were capital offenses. David had sinned beyond the reach, beyond the mercy of the Jewish law. There were no sacrifices within the Jewish law that were powerful enough to cleanse David from his double sins. And David could have despaired. He could have believed that he had broken the covenant between himself and God beyond repair. And yet David, in hope against hope, acknowledged his sin and repented. And God, in his kindness and compassion, blotted out David's sin. So we can read in Psalm 32, it's the psalm that David wrote after he had confessed his sin before God. And received God's forgiveness. Let me read it. You can just listen as I read Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. David's sin was beyond the mercy of God's law, but it was not beyond the mercy of God. David acknowledged and confessed his sin, and beyond expectation, he experienced the Lord's forgiveness and mercy and God's undeserved kindness. And because of that experience, because he had encountered God in that way, the presence of God was for David now an occasion of beautiful comfort. God had seen David in his worst and still loved him. I love verses 9 and 10 back here in our Psalm 139. David says, If I take the wings of the morning and dwell on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. Your right hand shall hold me fast. The term right hand, and I discovered that this week, studying for this sermon, it's one of the most beautiful expressions, really, in all of Scripture. If you do a quick search throughout the Psalms, you will often see the expression, God's right hand. God delivers with his right hand, Psalm 20. God invites David to sit at his right hand, Psalm 110. And as I was studying this week, I found a number of Old Testament resources which suggested that the meaning of God's right hand is that it refers to God's saving might or a special place of honor. And that's not untrue. But as one looks throughout the Psalms, we see that everyone has a right hand. David has a right hand. David's enemies have a right hand. And God has a right hand. In the Hebrew mindset, a person held his heart or his soul in his right hand which means that the right hand of a person was symbolically an extension of the person's own self. So this explains why the Apostle Paul, who's a good Hebrew, speaking in the New Testament, instructs us to extend the right hand of fellowship to each other. When I extend my right hand of fellowship to you, I'm extending my very self to you. And when you take my right hand with your right hand, you're receiving my right hand of fellowship by extending your own. So in the Hebrew mind, the right hand was where a person held the deepest and truest part of himself or herself. So, of course, many of the references in the Psalms about God's right hand speak of power and might and honor because God is a God of power and might and honor. But not just power and might and honor. He is also a God of joy and pleasure. So Psalm 1611, in your presence there is fullness of joy in your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And he's also a God of love and refuge from one's enemies. Psalm 17, 7. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior. 
of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And a God of compassion in our desperate moments, Psalm 63, 8, my soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. God offers us joy and pleasure in his right hand. He offers us love and refuge, compassion and support. But here's the thing that is so beautiful about the right hand of God. All throughout the Psalms, God only ever uses his right hand for his people. He never wields it against his people. The right hand of God is often wielded against the psalmist's enemies, but it is never wielded against the psalmist. And the beautiful truth that David had learned was that even when David had sinned, the right hand of God had continued to hold him fast. This doesn't mean there weren't consequences for David's sin, and it doesn't mean that David didn't need to repent and acknowledge his sin, but what it meant was that the right hand of God remained for David all throughout David's life. The right hand of God never turned against David. And by the time David pens Psalm 139, he has come to know the right hand of God as a hand of compassion and tender mercy, a hand of unconditional love and inexhaustible kindness. To be held in the right hand of God is to be held within God's own heart of love. So this morning, are you held in the right hand of God? God has sent Jesus into the world as the open right hand of his fellowship. Listen to these words from Jesus in John chapter 10. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. God is offering you this morning in his son, the right hand of his fellowship. He wants to enter into a covenant relationship with you, just like he did with David. Not because you are sinless, but to make you sinless. Not because you are great, but to make you great. Just as David wrote in Psalm 32, God's gracious kindness, it blots out all of our iniquities and it covers over all of our transgressions. There are some wrongs that we can make right returning money that we've stolen, coming clean about cheating on a test, leaving a note on the windshield of the car that you hit in the parking lot. But there are some wrongs that we can't make right. Wrongs like David's double sins of adultery and murder or unsaying something that we can't unsay or undoing and redoing the poor parenting mistakes that we made when our kids were younger. We can't go back and undo what we've done. 
and the stain of the guilt that we can't wash off our hands and the weight of the misdeeds that we can't make right, they weigh us down. But the good news of the gospel is that even though there was no sacrifice in the law powerful enough to cleanse David from his mortal sins, the sacrifice of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse all of us from all of our sins. There are no sins that need stand between us and God. All can be cleansed and made whole in the cleansing blood of Jesus. The wrongs that we can't make right, He can make right. The stains that we can't wash off our hands, He can wash off our hands. If you are not in covenant with God through Jesus this morning, then He offers to you His right hand of fellowship. Free of charge, no strings attached, no requirements or hoops that you need to jump through. He does not offer you his hand because you are clean. He offers you his hand to make you clean. He loves you. And he has paid all that is necessary to open the way for you to take his hand. He invites you through my words to take in faith his hand this morning. And if you are already in covenant with God, then be reminded this morning that not even your sin can turn God's right hand of love against you. So that's the first thing I want us to hear from this text. God loves you without condition. And here's the second thing that I want us to hear from verses 13 through 16. God has always loved you without condition. Look back here at verses 13 through 16. I want to read them again. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet as, when as yet there was not one of them. As David continues his theme of God's compassionate presence, he pulls his vision back from the farthest reaches of the heavens, the, the far sides of the sea, and he zooms into the deepest parts of the earth. I once saw a video in science class looking at the expanse of the universe, both outside of us and inside of us. And the camera starts looking at this man who's in a park, and it zooms far back to the furthest reaches of the galaxy until there's nothing but just spinning planets and little dots of light. And then the camera zooms back in. It comes down into the man. It enters into his hand. It goes into his cells until we only see spinning electrons and little dots of light. And it's this amazing picture of just the expanse both outside of us and inside of us. And David is doing that same sort of thing here. He's zoomed all the way back to the farthest reaches of the universe, right? And now he is zooming back in, going into the depths of the earth. And David's point is that the divine hand of compassion that holds him is the same hand that has always held him. From the time that he was in his mother's womb, the hand of God has been holding him, knitting him together, shaping him, forming him. 
Charles Spurgeon is a great preacher and an interpreter of the Psalms, and he says of this verse, he says, A great artist will often labor alone in his studio and not suffer his work to be seen until it is finished. Even so did the Lord fashion us where no eye beheld us, and the veil was not lifted till every member was complete. And the point that David is making is that even when he was being made in the womb, he was not free from God's compassionate presence. The right hand of God that holds him as he pens the psalm is the right hand that shaped him in the womb and gave him life. And the point to be made here is that God's love for you and I is so vast and compassionate that it not only reaches past our sin and our shortcoming, it also reaches past our beginning. Indeed, it is God's work of love that brings us into existence. So here we can see the connection between the archetypal reality of Christ and the church that we've been tracking all along in this sermon series. The work of gestation and creation earthly in the womb is no different really than God's spiritual work of regeneration and sanctification in the church. The good works of the church are God's work. They're not our own work by ourselves. They're God's work wrought in us, John says in John chapter 4. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, these works are created in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul compares the birth and growth of good works in the church to the flowering of a field. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who gives the growth. And it's the same with human generation. The husband and wife plant and water, but it is God who causes life to grow. We do not have it in our power to create life, either earthly or spiritual. All of it is a gift from God. Life is sacred in the womb because the life in the womb is God's own work, not fundamentally our work. He is the divine artist, fashioning fearful and wonderful pieces of art, you and me. All right, so it's from this vantage point that I want us to begin to reflect about the morality of abortion. There's a lot of debate in our culture about when life begins. But I think that's the wrong way to frame up the question. The answer is not when does life begin, but rather when does God begin making life? The answer is he begins making life in the mother's womb from the time of conception, from even before conception. The culture's cry from the left is, my body, my choice. But it's not my body, and it's not your body. It's God's body. He is the master artist who makes and fashions all of our bodies. And in the act of human conception, God is shaping and fashioning the human person. This is why Christianity from the very beginning has always cherished and held sacred the work of God that is being shaped in the womb. One can read the writings of all the earliest Christian writers. They 
talk about this. The witness of the church without qualification has always held that life in the womb is a sacred work of God. Now, all of this, I think, might sound like beautiful and humbling news for expectant mothers and fathers, being reminded that the life that is growing up inside the mother is God's own work, that that this life hasn't come about just through the agency and the power of the mother and father, the husband and wife, but is God's own work that is bringing this to pass. But it it may seem like hard and difficult news for women who have had abortions. But it need not be hard news. So often when Christians read a passage like Psalm 139, we read the first half of this psalm, verses 1 through 12, as being about adults. But then we read verses 13 through 18 as being about the unborn. But that's to miss the point entirely. The point is not simply that unborn babies are fearfully and wonderfully made. The point is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You, right here in this moment, are a wonderful work of God's right hand. You are the one that God, in love, knit together in the womb. You are the one that he knew in the secret place. And you are the one that he has held in his hand of compassion and mercy your whole life, even up to this very point. Not because you earned it or deserved it, not because you would earn it or deserve it, but because he has loved you with an eternal love. And there's nothing you have done or can do to cause him to stop loving you. He loves you. And his hand of love is always with you. It has always been with you. And it will always be with you. And this is a word for all of us. Do we think that the right hand of God pulls back from his children when we sin? It does not. His love is always with us. It is with us before we sin. It is with us during our sin, and it is with us after our sin. And it is with us when we try in our own strength to clean up the messes that we have made. And his love is with us when we finally fall into his love and rest in him. In verse 17, David speaks of the preciousness and the vastness of God's thoughts, how they are beyond counting, more than the sands of the sea. What are God's thoughts but thoughts of love? He himself is love. Before the stars were made, before the first light of the dawn, before the earth was formed, he knew our name, and he loved us with an eternal love. And he asks only that we place our right hand in his right hand, that we confess our need of him and give up hoping in our own power, the power of our own right hand, and instead surrender to the power and the mercy of his right hand. And when we do, he takes us as his own, and all is forgiven, all is forgotten, and all the dross of our lives is cast aside, and our sins are scattered to the winds and are separated from us as far as the east is from the west. 
you and I, no matter what we have done and no matter what we will do, stand here this morning as objects of his tender mercy, his compassion, and his love. He is with us even when we cannot trace his hand, even when we cannot sense his presence. He is with us in our failures and in our sins. And from the very moment of our conception, while we were still unformed in our mother's womb, he has always been with us in love. He has always been for us. And he is for you now this morning. All right, now let me say a word about what this means then, I think, for the church's response to the issue of abortion. It means that we must not choose between the sanctity of the mother and the sanctity of her baby because both are fearfully and wonderfully made. Both are precious in God's sight and both are held in his hand of love. God is for both. And even if we wanted to choose between them, we cannot. The life of the mother and the life of her unborn baby are intertwined. To help the baby requires us to help the mother. And to help the mother requires us to help the baby. The political right prioritizes the life of the unborn baby. And the political left prioritizes the life of the mother. But Jesus calls us to prioritize both equally. Abortion is, in almost all occurrences, an occasion of deep pain for a woman. I read an article by a lady named Frederica Matthews Green. She was formerly a strong proponent of pro-choice and, and argued for the morality of abortion, but she since changed her mind and she wrote an article for the National Review entitled, When Abortion Suddenly Stopped Making Sense. And here's an excerpt from her piece. She says, The issue gets presented as if it's a tug of war between the woman and the baby. We see them as mortal enemies locked in a fight to the death. We're supposed to picture the child attacking the mother, trying to destroy her hopes and plans. And picture the woman grateful for the abortion since it rescued her from the clutches of her child. If you were in charge of a nature preserve and you noticed that the pregnant female mammals were trying to miscarry their pregnancies, eating poisonous plants or injuring themselves, what would you think? You would immediately think something must be really wrong in this environment. Something is creating intolerable stress, so much so that the animals would rather destroy their own offspring than bring them into the world. You would strive to identify and correct what ever factors were causing this stress in the animals. The same thing goes for the human animal. Abortion gets presented to us as if it's something women want. Both pro-choice and pro-life rhetoric can reinforce that idea. But women do this only if all their other options look worse. It's supposed to be her choice. Yet in, for so many women, they say, I really didn't have a choice. No one wants an abortion as she wants an ice cream cone or a Porsche. She wants an abortion as an animal caught in a trap, wants to gnaw off its own leg. No woman skips lightly to the abortion clinic and lightly away from the abortion clinic. So often, much too often, political and 
theological conservatives portray women who have had abortion in this way. As though a woman chooses an abortion because she thinks of it as a choice without consequence or thought. But it's not just the political and theological conservatives, as Green points out. The political and feminist left tells us this same narrative when it tries to sanitize abortion and insist that abortion is just another medical procedure without lasting consequence or emotional pain for women, just removing a bit of tissue. But the truth is, in nearly all cases, women only very reluctantly make the choice for abortion because they intuitively know that it's not just a bit of tissue and only because they cannot see an easy alternative. This is especially true for women who are living in poverty, which is where the weight of the abortion issue falls heaviest. According to federal statistics, 75% of abortions in 2014 were among low-income women. It's not enough for the church to simply insist on the sanctity of life in the womb. We must also work to provide resources and material help for women who don't want to choose abortion, but who feel like they have no choice. I mentioned this a number of months ago, but it's worth saying again that Calvary, we are partnering, we're one of the founding churches, partnering with a church out in Wheaton and another church over in the Austin community to start up a women's clinic, a women's health clinic over in the Austin neighborhood. And the focus and point of this clinic is to help women who are pregnant and wanting to keep their child or they've already had their children and they're trying to keep their children together as a family, but they're limited in their resources. And so the clinic comes alongside providing material help, health screenings, counseling, free diapers, free formula, and so this is, the, this is the sort of services that the church needs to be offering out into the distressed ecosystem of the world. Not simply a message that abortion is wrong, but also the tangible help to make a way for women who want to keep their children but feel like they're trapped in a system that doesn't make it easy to do so. And that leads to my final point and the final verses of this psalm. God is calling some of us this morning, maybe all of us to varying degrees, to repent. He loves us. He has always loved us. And at times, he calls us to repent. Takes us into verses 19 through 22. Let me reread them. Maybe they stood out to you as we were reading through the the passage. Kind of feels like it takes a left turn. David seems like he takes a left turn, but... He's extolling the wonders and greatness of God's presence. And then all of a sudden in verse 19, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Preachers and interpreters are always a little bit puzzled about what to do with these verses. There's probably a lot to say here about imprecatory prayers in general in the Psalms and how these sorts of verses fit into the Psalms. But all I want to say for now is that part of what it means to love God is to set ourselves in firm opposition against that which sets itself in opposition against God. 
Jesus doesn't call us to hate our enemies. Indeed, he calls us to love our enemies. In the ever-expanding circle of God's love, Jesus opens new ways for God's enemies to be reconciled to God. And we, as Jesus' people, are the agents of that reconciliation. But though we do not fight against people, we are called to fight. In the words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers that reign over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Then he says this in another passage. He says, we are called to destroy arguments and every lofty thought raised up against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. What that means is that we are to fight against the systems of lies that lead to the tragedy of abortion. The 63 million abortions in this country are downstream consequences of whole generations of men and women who have been systematically lied to about the procreative powers of sex and who have been taught to think of sex as only pleasure and pastime. So I invite you to consider the far-reaching, corrosive impact of pornography. The emerging generation, the current generation, is awash in pornography. Not the pornography of past generations. The internet video pornography of today is a cesspool of violence and filth and degradation to women. Pornography teaches men to depersonalize women and to think of sex in completely self-aggrandizing ways, to think of sex as entertainment and power. Pornography teaches men to depersonalize women, and much worse, it teaches men and women to think of women like objects sexual playthings, and it denies the latent maternal potential inherent in womanhood. Women have a procreative power that the porn industry hides at all costs. And a whole culture of young men and increasingly young women have bought into the lie that the porn industry sells that sex is just an activity. But the procreative power of women is indisputable. And it is women who live with the consequences of this lie. Yes, women have agency and they have their own choices to make. But God have mercy on this generation of men who have bought into the lie of our pornographic culture and who use their sexual power to take advantage of women and then just walk away. And it's not just porn and it's not just men. It's a lie coming out of the cultural feminist left as well. A lie that downplays or outright denies the bodily differences between men and women and deceives women and men into thinking that women can have sex without consequences, just like men. But it's not true. The 15 million single mothers in our country today and the 63 million abortions since Roe versus Wade gives proof to the lie that is the liberal feminist sexual ethic. 
Abortion and contraception are not an adequate substitute for chastity and living out the image of Christ and the church. And again, it is women and children who tragically bear the heaviest brunt of this lie. Where are the 15 million single fathers? Where are the 63 million men who went with their girlfriends to the abortion clinic? God help the feminist left who has lied to women about the supposed non-consequences of sex. All of us should enter in to the spirit of these verses in Psalm 139. The imprecatory nature. Oh, that God would slay the strongholds of pornography and exploitation that perpetuate the destruction of the cultural ecosystem. So important for mothers and children. And oh, that God would slay the lies of the liberal left when it tells the untruths about female sexuality to the harm of women and their children. And God have mercy on us if we participate in either of those. If you are a man and you are treating women like sex objects, whether that's having sex outside of marriage or you are using porn and making no effort to extract yourself, I say to you, not tenderly, not gently, but firmly, you must repent. God is not pleased with your behavior. He loves you. And he loves the women and the children that your misogyny is harming. Repent. Find someone to confess your sins to. And then pledge by God's grace and with God's help to do better. Maybe you need to join Celebrate Recovery. Maybe you've been nursing this habit on the side that you've just sort of made peace with. It's rotting out your soul, but it's not just your soul that is rotting out. It's rotting out an entire culture's soul. And God is calling you to repent, to change your mind about your actions, and to do what needs to be done to get the help that you need to make that right. Join Celebrate Recovery. Maybe you've held off in doing it because of your pride and you don't want anyone to see you and what would people think? Lay aside your pride and do what is right. If you are a man or a woman who is perpetuating the lie coming out of the cultural left that sex is only a form of recreation and you parrot the feminist rot that women's liberation means getting to have sex without consequence, then I say to you, not tenderly, not gently, but firmly, you too need to repent. God is not pleased with the lies that you tell. God is not pleased that you so easily sweep away his Christian sexual ethic that points to Christ in the church that is the life of humanity. Confess your sins to God. Pledge to do better by his grace. He loves you. And he loves the women and children your lies hurt. And he would call you to something better. And then finally, if you're a woman who has had an abortion, no doubt there are some here this morning. Perhaps because you felt caught up and trapped 
in a crumbling ecosystem. Or maybe you didn't even feel trapped. But you wonder if God can forgive you, if there can be healing and freedom. And I say to you gently and tenderly, you too need to repent. As I said last week, the word repent simply means to change one's mind. You can't undo what has been done. Entrust the past to the inscrutable and merciful hand of God's loving providence. But if you are doubting God's compassion and love, repent about your lack of faith that God can forgive you. He can forgive you. Repent of your lack of belief that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that you are precious in his eyes. He loves you. He has always loved you. From the moment that he knit you together in your mother's womb, he has loved you, and he loves you even now. He loves all of us. And may each of us repent where repentance is necessary and take hold of the right hand of God that is holding on to us. God, thank you that you hold your children always in your right hand. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us grace, give us capacity to take that right hand. I pray that you would stir in hearts as need, as needed. Or perhaps some of us here this morning, we just... We do need to repent. And you're not pleased with our behavior and we've been pushing it off. You're asking us to change. I pray that you would help us to to come underneath your loving right hand, surrender to it, and enter into the fullness of your grace. Or maybe, Lord, there's some here that have made mistakes in the past and the weight of that weighs so heavy. Lord, may, may you, by your Spirit, remind those tender hearts here this morning that your love is inexhaustible, that you can make all things clean, you can fix all things. God, help them to turn to you and hope in that grace, just even as David turned in to you with hope in your grace. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.